What this is showing to us is that true grace that is implanted in the soul necessarily produces an unquenchable thirst for more grace. United with Christ, our efforts and His efforts, His supernatural empowering, they all merge into one. I know we looked at these two verses last week, but they are so pivotal for our understanding of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. You hear the focus? You hear the paying close attention to what you hear? You hear the inclining your heart? You hear the seeking after it like a hidden treasure? I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Okay? So you see this merging together of these two. So there's a, there's a brother in Christ by the name of Dane Ortland that has really helped me to grasp this in, I think, a more complete and more accurate biblical way. So think of this as if we think about our post-Christian, our post-conversion life, think about your post-conversion life, the life that begins at conversion. And then that life that is then this striving towards godliness, the sanctification. Think of that as a circle and picture in your mind a circle and your post-conversion life is represented by what's inside this circle. What's inside the circle is your post-conversion life of how you pursue godliness in a real way. All right, so what you put inside the circle determines how you consider, how you understand that that post-conversion holiness or godliness is how you are working to achieve that. So inside the circle, we might put the, the first thing that we might put might be me, me. And that would represent the idea that salvation is of God, it's His work, but once I'm saved, then that's when I get to work. And I think everybody in the room would immediately recognize that that's just terribly unbiblical. That upon salvation, it's not like God says, okay, there, I've given you forgiveness and pardon. Good luck. God, God doesn't say that. I think we all recognize that. So that's, that one, we would discard it immediately. The me goes away. But then the correction of that might sort of overshoot the target. And inside the, the circle, we might, instead of putting me, we might put God to say, Salvation is all of God. And then after salvation, it's still all of God. From that came, if you remember back in the 90s, you remember that whole let go, let God thing? That sort of came out of that. It's all God. And just so just stop, just stop. It's all God, right? So you take the me out and you put God in and somehow you, you, you sense that you're closer to the biblical reality, but that still doesn't square with the scriptures at all, particularly scriptures like 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10. So then you might erase out the God and you might try once again. The third try, again, you picture the the circle and imagine that you take your marker and you draw this sort of squiggly line down through the circle, separating it into sort of two sort of squiggly halves. And on one half, you would put God. And on the other half, you'd put me. And that would represent this convergence, this coming together, this God coming together with me. And the two, we combine our efforts and together we pursue godliness. I can't do it alone and God won't do it without me. And so it's just coming together. 
And we might sense that, yeah, I'm obviously getting much closer to the biblical picture. But this is where Ortland really helped me to see we're still not there. Because our post-Christian life is not this. Instead, our post-Christian life is the circle with both God and me written inside. In such a way, picture it like this. My efforts, Paul, I worked harder than anyone. And along comes the Spirit. And like with the wings of an eagle, takes what I give, and it's me. It, it won't happen without I, Paul, worked harder than any of them. But it was not me. It was the Spirit. And so underneath comes the Spirit. And together, this is the union of Christ. This is Christ and me, one. This is what Paul says to the Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer Paul. But Paul is now united together with Christ. This is the full picture of post-conversion life. This is the full picture of union with Christ. God will not honor laziness. God will not honor spiritual sluggardness. But He will come along with His empowering spiritual multiplication and like the wings of an eagle, take our efforts and raise them to spiritual heights. And that's what Jesus is saying here. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And much more will be added. There's, it's not a one-to-one correlation. It's not a one in, one out, two in, two out. This is the union of the believer with Jesus Christ in such a way that our efforts are then greatly multiplied many times over. God has determined that the pathway to knowing Him is the pathway of diligent attention to what He has said to us. So that's a good way to think of this, I think. That God has determined that the pathway to knowing Him or the place of knowing Him, think of it like that. Like the location. The location in which this blessing, the blessing of knowing God, Paul says to the Philippians, that I might know Him in the power of His resurrection. That the location of knowing Him is the location of the diligent attention to what He has said to us. Alright, so think of it like this. I've used this analogy before, and I'll use it again because I'm not a very creative person. I can't come up with a whole bunch of good analogies. So I'm going to use the same one I've used before. I'm going to tell you a parable. And the parable is the parable of the time a few years ago when we lived in Burlington. All right. So in Burlington, there are two Chick-fil-A's about two, maybe three miles apart, one exit apart, two Chick-fil-A's. Now, back before everything got crazy and all of a sudden a chicken sandwich at Chick-fil-A was eight dollars. And back when when there was a time that on special occasions we could sort of go and and treat ourselves to Chick-fil-A, there was an occasion that I took it wasn't all our whole brood, but it was, I don't know, four or five of of our kids and me. And and we went to Chick-fil-A. We're going to sort of treat ourselves to Chick-fil-A. And this was back when the mobile ordering app was new. You use the mobile ordering app? Love that thing. Love it. Put in your order. Boom, you just sit at your table. Anyway, it was brand new. And so if you use the mobile ordering app, you know how it works. You go on there and it asks you what restaurant you want to order from. 
and it tells you the ones that you've recently ordered from, and it also tells you the ones that are close to you. And remember, there's two Chick-fil-A's, like two miles apart. So I just, you know, punched the one, put in my order. It was like $40 of food. Paid for it, and we're sitting there, and we're sitting there, and we're sitting there. And I start thinking, it never takes Chick-fil-A this long. And then I ask about it, and you know what happens. I had ordered and paid for the food at the wrong Chick-fil-A. The food was paid for. It was prepared. It was packaged. It was on a tray. They were trying to give it to me. But I was not in the right place to get it. That is how, if you take that to the spiritual level, that is how we are to think of the diligent focus and attention to that which God has said to us. That is the place in which He has determined that is where my blessing will go. That is where I will bless them with the greatest blessing of all, the blessing of knowing me. It's not because their effort was so well organized and so energetic, but it's because they were in that, pl- in that location with their effort, that is the place that I have determined I will come underneath their effort and I will magnify it and I will bless them in that location. That is how we are to think of Jesus' teaching here. No other place, no other place is the place that God has said, here is where I will bless. Not the beach, not, not a mountain scene, not on your morning walk, Now, those locations might be the location where you are when the spiritual location of diligent attention to His Word is where your soul is. But there is no location other than this location that God has said, here is where I will bless with my greatest and most profound blessing. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. Now, Jesus follows this up with the second, if you want to call it a second parable or an extension of the first first parable. Verse 25, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So to the one who has, more will be given. That is an echo of the end of verse 24. But then also he says to the one who has... What he has will be taken away. And that word, that word taken away, that, that word can be a very forceful word. It's the same word we saw back in chapter 2 to describe the tearing away from the patch, the garment from the patch, right? So this tearing away, this removing, even what he has might be taken away. So it's a little bit confusing how it's worded here. And we might think, well, uh, what does it mean that what he has will be taken? Does he have it or does he not have it? How can something he doesn't have be taken away? We understand his meaning here, Right? But nevertheless, Luke makes it a little clearer when Luke tells the same parable in chapter 8, verse 18 of Luke. Take care then how you hear for the one who has, to the one who has more will be given and from the one who has not, here it is, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. All right, so there's the idea there made a little bit clearer for us in Luke that there's not the actual having, but it's the perception. It's the false thinking. I think I've got, so right now we're thinking, which soil? Thorny soil. These are tares. These are tares who think that they have attachment to Christ, but there's no fruitfulness. So what you think that you might have, even that's going to be taken away. 
So once again, the same parable, Jesus uses the same words elsewhere to teach related truths. Matthew 25, verse 29, with the parable of the talents. Jesus says, For for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's the parable of the talents, which is teaching the idea of of the rightful godly stewarding of God's resources. Luke 19, verse 26, that's the parable of the ten minas, a similar truth there, the same parable shows up. So we see once again how Jesus will use the same parable in different situations, in different contexts to teach different realities. But here he says, to the one who has, more will be given, and to the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. So what this parable is showing us is the principle of eternal spiritual movement. The, the principle of constant spiritual movement. We, talk, we touched on this last week. We touched on this to say that the Scriptures want us to think of our life in terms of a pathway. We're on a pathway. We're, in a, we're moving down a pathway. Either that pathway is a wide pathway leading to a wide gate, or it's a narrow pathway leading to a narrow gate. But we're always moving on that pathway, either closer to God or further from God. Here that teaching is made explicit when Jesus says, to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks he might have, will be taken from him. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is, there is no such thing as the static soul. That there are only two types of souls that the Scripture knows. One is the soul that is growing and learning and paying close attention to what the testimony of Christ has come to them. And the other soul is the one who doesn't know Him. Can you see that in the text? Can you see that that's what Jesus is saying? There's only two things going on here. One is there is a soil or a soul, S-O-U-L or S-O-I-L. There is a soul that is being given more, who has, who has fruitfulness, who has this diligent focus and paying attention, and to that soul, more is being added. And the only other option, Jesus says, is the one who doesn't have. You might think you have. You might be the tear, or you might be the withered plant, who at one time thought you had, but you've long since died. Or you might be the hard-packed ground. Either way, Jesus says there's two souls. One soul is being added to, and the other soul doesn't know me. Those are not my words. Can you see? This is what Jesus is plainly and straightforwardly saying. Either you know me, and you are progressing actively along the path of knowing me more, and you are paying close attention to the testimony that you've heard of me, and continuing to do that, or... Even though you might think that you know me, you don't. This harkens us back to, of course, one of the most frightening letters of the New Testament, Hebrews. Chapter 5 and verse 12. Just to paraphrase Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12, here's what the writer says. By this point, you should have been teaching others. But you have so neglected that that you can no you, you can't even handle spiritual food. You must be given spiritual milk like an infant 
like a baby because your spiritual digestive system can't handle food. It must be given milk. What's milk? Partially pre-digested food. That's what milk is. In which the infant who has such a sensitive digestive system cannot handle undigested food they must be given partially pre-digested food, not to gross anybody out, but that's what milk is. They must be given partially pre-digested food in order for their system to handle it. The writer to the Hebrews takes that into the spiritual realm and says, this is you. Your spiritual digestive system is so underdeveloped that you can't even handle actual food. You must have it pre-digested for you. Now, need I say that the letter to the Hebrews then goes on to give the most frightening warnings in all the New Testament to say, do you even know Him? Do you even know Him? Because the one who knows Him is the one, as Jesus says in verse 25, there's two options. You either know Me and you're paying attention, close attention to what I have given to you and you are progressing in knowing Me or you don't know Me at all. What this is showing to us is that true grace that is implanted in the soul necessarily produces an unquenchable thirst for more grace. That is the nature of God's grace. The nature of God's grace in whatever dimension it comes to us automatically produces within us a thirst for more of it. If God blesses you with the grace of hating a particular sin in your own life, that will necessarily cause you to thirst for more of that hatred of that sin in your life. If God blesses you with the spiritual grace of patience, that will necessarily create in you an appetite or a thirst for more of that grace. That is how the grace of God works. Psalm 34 verse 7 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And so, if tasting of the Lord, if tasting of His grace does not produce a recognition of His goodness and a desire for more of that, then we don't know our God at all. Then He's not a good God. He's not a God that can say to us, taste and see that I am good. So necessarily a grace of knowing Him produces a thirst and a hunger to know Him more. Look at some of the scriptural evidence. Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. This is speaking of the Bereans who received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Or of the Thessalonian believers who received the words of Paul in power and conviction, with full conviction. Chapter 2 verse 13, that they, Paul says, I thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted as the word, not of men, but as it really is the word of God. Or look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119, the whole psalm, which is the longest chapter in the Bible, that whole psalm is all about the thirst and the hunger for knowing God through His Word. Just take a look at some of the examples from verse 10. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Or verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Do you see the thrust of the psalm is to say, the one who has been brought to know the Lord automatically thirsts 
and hungers to know him more. Because grace, the grace that's given to us produces in us an appetite for more of that grace. This is why the writer to the Hebrews will say in Hebrews 12 verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. The nature of a fire is that it consumes all the fuel that it has. A fire never says, oh, I've kind of burned long enough. I'm I'm sort of tired. I'll, I'll leave the rest of that wood alone. That's not what a fire does. A fire consumes all the fuel that it has. Our God is called a consuming fire because to taste of His grace automatically means you are given an appetite for more. The Scriptures know nothing of any type of true believer in Jesus Christ or true follower of Jesus Christ who does not seek Him with their whole heart. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Now that doesn't mean that all of us perfectly every day in day in and day out always seek God with our whole heart. But it is to say that the scriptures know of no one who truly belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and seeks him one day out of seven or a couple of Sundays out of the month or when it might be convenient, or when your life might be in trouble, or when you might have your back against the wall. The Scripture knows nothing of those who know God and seek Him half-heartedly. The Scriptures only know of those who have tasted of the grace of God and seek Him with their whole heart, admittedly imperfectly, admittedly with shortfallings and stumblings. But, ne- but that is to say that the one who has tasted of the Lord necessarily seeks them with their whole heart. That is why Jesus can say to us, the greatest commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Pay close, diligent, careful, and focused attention and continue paying careful attention to that which you have heard and that which you continue to hear. 